Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, back in the, back in the late 80s, a, a popular children's puzzle began to be published. It's very likely you've ran across these books over the last 30 years. It was first published in the United Kingdom as Where's Wally? And that's what we always ask when we go on vacation. Is there a Walmart nearby? Where's Wally? Uh, but the famous red and white beanie-wearing character eventually appeared on bookstores in the United States as Where's Waldo? And hopefully you can find him. Uh, I may or may not have spent way too long this week studying for this sermon trying to find Waldo in that picture. He is, uh, he's in the bottom left quadrant, I'll tell you that. So, uh, so if you can find it uh, while I'm talking, then, then uh, more power to you. There's no prizes involved, it's just if you can find him. Um, I remember getting frustrated with Waldo because uh, always so hard to find. Quite a shifty character when you think about it. I don't trust anybody that's always hiding like that. Uh, so I don't know what Waldo was up to, but um, it, well, it turns out as Waldo was published more and more that the publishers were actually trying to make him harder and harder to find. If you look at early Where's Waldo books, he was of a certain size, and then as the book, more books were published, he shrunk. And then he was also surrounded by more and more characters. In the first book, he only had 225 other people on the page. And by latter books, it was up to 850-plus characters on a page. I think this is one of these with 850-plus characters. I did not count the characters to see, uh, so I, I can't tell you that. Um, now, where's Waldo? He, he may have been hard to find, but I, I'm actually afraid that my own inability to find Waldo may have been exacerbated by something that was actually far beyond my control. You see, I ran across a medical condition a while ago that revolutionized the way that I understand myself. Um, I've been in denial about it quite some time. This is where you get nervous, right, when the preacher starts talking like this, like, oh, no. I've been in denial. I thought there's got to be some other explanation. This just, there's got to be some reason that, that, that this is true about me. And I'll say this came to a head in the church kitchen a few weeks ago. Uh, Carol asked me to look for something, and um, I searched, and I searched, and I couldn't find it. It was nowhere. It wasn't in there, I'm convinced. Uh, couldn't lay my eyes on it. The problem is that it wasn't an inconsequential tiny object. It wasn't like I was looking for a needle in a haystack. It was a propane tank, a 30-pound metal cylinder filled with highly flammable, highly compressed gas. You'd think you could see it. And so I couldn't. I looked everywhere in the kitchen, and that propane tank was hidden, at least for me. My dad used to say when I couldn't find something, I don't know if your dad ever said this, if it was a snake, it'd bit you. Uh, and, and this propane tank, if it had been a snake, I, y'all would have found my body dead in the kitchen. Uh, it was right there in plain sight, not hidden, just hidden for me. And I told Carol I couldn't find it, but I offered a caveat and I offer this to you gentlemen as a caveat that you can use. I said, Carol, I, I can't find it, but I am a man. <laughs> and what I ran across is a condition called male pattern blindness. <laughs> I hate to think about the amount of time that I've spent looking for stuff that's in plain sight. But having a medical diagnosis actually gives me a tremendous amount of liberty. I can actually now blame this medical diagnosis for my problem. 
My wife asked me to look for something the other day, and I said, I can't find it. And she said, are you sure it's not there? I said, I'm sure, but I'm also a man. (laughs) So freeing to be able to say that. What's frustrating, and I love my wife, is that she can find things without even looking for them. She was telling me the other day what we had and didn't have in the pantry. And she wasn't at the house. She's like, we've got this in the pantry. This is not in the pantry. I said, how do you know? I could be staring at the pantry and can't give you an inventory of what's there and what's not there. Thankfully, male pattern blindness is clearly a thing because some of y'all women are laughing a lot about this. And, And the men are all like, praise the Lord. This is teaching that I can affirm. So we all agree male pattern blindness is clearly a thing. Now if I can just find a doctor to help me diagnose this pesky hearing issue that I've got. Huh? (laughs) As you think about all the things that you've searched for and all the things that you've lost in your life, I want that to catapult us into our, our text today in Acts chapter 17. Paul and Silas and the team, they've been released from Philippi. They've spent some time visiting with the church there at Philippi, and they've set out on their way. They head west. If you've got maps in your Bible, feel free to turn back there. They head west across the northern tip of the Aegean Sea, the little outcropping of the Mediterranean that separates Greece from Turkey. And they come to another town, very familiar to us, because there's a couple letters in the New Testament written to this group of people, the Thessalonians. And so Paul actually spends enough time there that he develops a rapport, has time to write some letters to them. So now I want us to turn our attention to how Luke tells us about this next part of the journey there in Acts chapter 17. And invite you to stand as I read Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying that this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, 
And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and their journey and their experience and how they encourage each one of us. I pray, Father, we'd be faithful. We'd be uh, true to your word. We'd handle it well. I pray that we would uh, embrace what you have for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. If you recall when Paul ended up in Philippi, we know his normal routine was to go into where the, the synagogue, to go where the Jews were. But there was no synagogue in Philippi, so Paul and his companions made that riverside place of prayer, their, their base of operations. However, the town of Thessalonica obviously had a larger Jewish population. There was a synagogue there. And it was there that, that Paul began to shine the light of Christ into the hearts of the Jews who lived there. Of course, the gospel's far more for than just the Jews, and Luke reports to us that a, a good number of Gentiles received the good news of the gospel as well. And one of the things that we get here in Thessalonica is we get a glimpse of how the apostle Paul approached the gospel message with these non-believers, and it's not a bad pattern to follow, honestly, even in today's day and time. The first thing we find is that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. The word used reasoned here is actually where we get the English word dialogue. And so Paul was actually engaging in a dialogue with these people here at the synagogue. Carries the sense that there was a time of, of questions and answers. Now again, that's not the only way to teach. Obviously we see the, the sermon modeled in the scriptures as well. But this dialogue from the scriptures was was, was meant to be indeed that, from the scriptures. There was no room for speculation or doubt. And so it wasn't a time to just have wild thoughts and wild theories. It was, it was conversation. It was questions and answers that were guided from the word of God. And it seems that it was particularly helpful here when the audience was being introduced to a brand new idea. And Jesus, as the Christ, was this brand new idea. Secondly, he says that, that he explained. Literally, the word means that he, he opened he opened. It's the same word that Luke uses over in his gospel when he talks about what happens to the Emmaus disciples when Jesus taught them the Old Testament over in Luke chapter 24, verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn with, within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? Now, Jesus didn't literally open a Bible for those disciples. Instead, he talked to them. He, he showed them where he was in the Old Testament so that they knew that, that Christ was in and throughout the Old Testament. The idea here is that the gospel functions as a sort of key that unlocks the richness and depth of the scriptures. And we understand you can read the Old Testament and you can find the Old Testament to be beneficial. There's some hard things in it. Our reading right now is in the book of Leviticus, uh, the church-wide reading. I've often heard that Leviticus is where Bible reading plans go to die. There's a lot of things that die in Leviticus. There's a lot of blood in Leviticus. It's hard to read Leviticus. But you get to the end of the Leviticus and you see all the bloodshed and all the sacrifice, and if it doesn't make you appreciate the sacrifice on the cross, then you miss what you're reading. But when you understand the gospel shines the light of Christ on those Old Testament texts, then suddenly the Old Testament becomes so much more powerful, so much, so much more depth to it. 
When you read the Old Testament through the gospel lens, the richness of the text is, is magnified. And we can think about those, those stories. I, I think about the sacrifice of Isaac. When, when Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac, that story is powerful in and of itself. But when you understand that it's pointing forward to a greater sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, it, it illustrates that so much more. When you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, I talked about them last week. There was that fourth figure in the furnace. And by itself, you think, that has got to be an angel or something in there. But when you start to understand who Jesus is, you recognize, hey, that's probably Jesus in the furnace with those men. And suddenly the, the, the significance of the text is magnified, it's amplified as it is opened to us through the gospel. Thirdly, we find that Paul proved the text. Literally, it means that he, he set things beside. That's what the word literally means. And so he would take those, these Old Testament illustrations and he would set them beside and before these listeners to guide them to the right conclusion. In this case, he was proving that Jesus had to suffer and rise from the dead. So Paul tells the story of who Jesus is and what he's done. Now imagine Paul in the synagogue unrolling the scroll to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, for example. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You put that beside the story of Jesus? Who else fulfills that? Who else satisfies that? Where else are you going to find the truth other than in this reality? So this is what Paul did. This is how Paul taught. This is what Paul made his time doing there in Thessalonica. Luke reports to us that, that Paul was in the synagogue for three weeks. Now, we don't know how long Paul actually stayed there. But what we do know is that he stayed there long enough to get into trouble again. And depending on how much he preached, he may have gotten more trouble. Who knows? There were many, we're told, that, that responded to the gospel as Paul presented it. I would imagine that someone with an open mind would find it very difficult to disregard the Apostle Paul's message as insignificant. I mean, you read Paul. Go read through Paul's arguments in Romans and, and try to refute it. You're not going to refute the Apostle Paul. He's the most brilliant Christian thinker apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to refute Paul. And so Paul comes into the synagogue. He reasons, explains, and proved open-minded people are going to hear this, and they're going to hear what he has to say. How can, we, how can we not respond to this? How can we not trust this? How can we not believe this? Open-minded people, they're not going to reject Paul's message. Cue the closed-minded. Because the truth is, there are some people who will not listen to sound reasoning from the Scripture. We see them show up here in Thessalonica. Luke says that there were some of the Jews in the synagogue, and it uses an interesting word. It says, he, it says they, were, they were jealous. They were jealous of the Apostle Paul. That's such an incredible point to make. They weren't offended by his message. They were jealous of his results. These folks couldn't make a biblical argument to refute the Apostle Paul, so guess what they did? They made an emotional argument. They couldn't deny what he was saying, but instead all they could do is say, he's attracting a bigger crowd. He's collecting more people that used to listen to us. They were jealous of the results. So what do they do? We're told that they go and round up a mob. A, a mob, the text says, a, a wicked men of the rabble. That's like a biker gang. Let's get t-shirts printed. Wicked men of the rabble. Right? Get a tattoo or something. Wicked men of the rabble. Who in the world are the wicked men of the rabble? 
Well, the rabble refers to the group, this group of men who were just loitering in the marketplace looking to cause trouble. That's who this group of guys were. If it were today, hold on, think paid protesters. That's who it is. It's people that are looking to get paid to stir up trouble, looking for people who are looking to get paid. They don't care. They're not invested in, the, in, the Paul's, in Paul's message. They're not invested in what the Jews have to say. They're just looking to cause trouble and get a little paycheck on the side. And so apparently it's well known. If you need to cause trouble, go to the wicked men of the rabble. We'll hook you up. I don't know if they had business cards or signs above the urinals. I don't know what they had. The wicked men of the rabble. They don't have a cause other than that which makes them some money. So the Jews, this group of, of Jews who obviously weren't converts, instead of actually listening to what Paul had to say, instead of actually paying attention to his words, to the case that he was making, they hired a mob to stir up trouble. Now, we certainly want to look at these guys and say, these are the bad guys. These are the antagonists in the story. Don't be like them. Be like Paul. That, that's, how we want to, that's how we want to approach this. But I would argue that there is a warning here for each of us as well. And here's the warning. We need to be careful that we do not allow our sin to blind us from the plain truths of Scripture. We need to make sure that we do not allow our sin to blind us from the plain truths of Scripture. I have no doubt that the Apostle Paul presented an open and shut case for Christ, but these Jews were blinded by jealousy. They did not have a philosophical disagreement with what Paul said. They did not have a theological disagreement with what Paul said. They could not make a biblical case against what Paul said. The only thing they had to go by was the sin that had blinded them to what Paul was teaching. They were jealous of the crowd that he had attracted. I wonder how many times we're caught by something similar. We see the plain truth of what God says but we carve out our caveat. I know I shouldn't do this, but for whatever reason I can come up with, I'm exempt. No doubt, Paul makes a remarkable case for the Messiah. But look how people are flocking to his Bible studies, and they're skipping our Bible studies. See, God has given us instructions in so much of our lives, but we like to carve out our caveat. Well, I know I'm supposed to go to church, but I got this reason or, or that reason. I know I'm supposed to hold marriage in high honor, but, but what about this? I know I'm supposed to do blank, fill in the blank, but what about this, this caveat, this exception, this excuse? We need to make sure that we do not allow sin to blind us to the plain truths of Scripture. And so these jealous Jews are successful at running these guys out of town. <clears throat> Notice how they twist Paul's words, Acts 17, verse 7. They say that, that they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Paul's not advocating throwing over, overthrowing the Roman Empire. He's not advocating King Jesus to come in and, and conquer Rome. That's not what he's, he's advocating. He's advocating that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is there to save them from their sins, that he is a fulfillment of all the prophecy, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what Paul is, is preaching. 
But oh no, he, he's, he's advocating another king, King Jesus. Now this time, Paul and Silas managed to, to get out of town without physical harm. But they were in Thessalonica long enough to establish a church. Paul even addresses this over in the letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says in verse 1 there, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. See, this is where the letters reinforce what Luke says in Acts, and what Luke says in Acts reinforces what the letters say. It's one, vol- it's one book made up of multiple parts. So what happens? They leave and go to a little town called Berea. I've often found that church names are an interesting notion. I always said that if you go to a church named like Unity or Fellowship or Harmony, that probably means it was a church split at some point in time. I've always wondered at the church that names itself Corinth. Like, why'd you choose that name? What's going on at your church? Could have you named it Corinth? Uh, but I love the name Berea. You see, the, you see churches named Berea Baptist Church, a Berean Baptist Church, because they come to this text and they say, man, the Bereans, that's who we want to be like. And I say, amen. The Bereans are who we want to be like. So Paul leaves there in Thessalonica. He ends up in the town of Berea. And we're told, Luke, I love what he says here. He says that the Bereans are a little classier folks, right? He says they're a little more noble than the, than the Thessalonicans were. He says they're classier. They're set apart. They're not the same as the Thessalonians. And, and immediately, Bereans become an example for us, even to this day. How so? Because the Word of God must be our standard for evaluating truth. That's got to be our standard. Acts 17, verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Luke says that they receive the word with eagerness. What's that mean? Ever been eager for something? Like, step outside right now and you'll be eager for springtime. Uh, Because it's it's beautiful right there on the sun on the front porch. Go out that way when you leave just to sit and get some vitamin D in when you walk out. You'll be eager for springtime. It feels so nice outside right now. You'll be eager. Kids are eager for Christmas. You know, they, they can't wait. Count down the days. They're probably eager right now for that last day of school, ready to maybe even spring break. This is to get us to spring break, right? They're eager. He says here that they receive the Word of God with, with eagerness. They couldn't wait to receive the Word of God. Eagerness. You know, Foster and I have been studying our, our online audience. Been looking at some things with the online crowd. and Man, I, I think back to two years ago. been almost two years now. That, that we started having to do this online thing. And, uh, and we don't know anything about the online crowd unless they tell us. Uh, you, know, I, you know, they got to go in and comment so we know they're there. But they just represent a, a number in an algorithm that gets thrown around. One of the interesting things that we have found as we've looked at data over the course of the last several months is that though we know very little about that group of people, we do, we do know some, some patterns that this group of people as a whole have. One of the interesting patterns that we see over the course of, of multiple weeks and months is that it's, like, it's almost like TV ratings. You can kind of see ratings as they ebb and flow, and we're able to watch that. And invariably, the, the number of people who watch an online worship service drops off dramatically. 
noticeably when the sermon starts. I saw that and I said, how dare them? I was offended. They turned it off. They, they quit watching when I got up here. How rude. And I realized something. That reflects a pattern that's somewhat unnerving. Reflects a pattern that demonstrates a lack of eagerness when it comes to the Word of God. Now, truth be told, that lack of eagerness is not just reflected in an online broadcast, it's reflected everywhere. We live in a Christian culture that is tremendously biblically illiterate. Some of the most popular Bible teachers today actually teach a version of Christianity that you won't find in the Bible. But they're popular. Across the board, Sunday school, discipleship activities are not attended as well as, as worship gatherings. Ask yourself a personal question. How is your own personal, private, devotional life working out right now? Are you spending time in the Scriptures on a regular, consistent basis? Is it an important part of your day, an important part of your life? Are you as eager for your time in the Word of God as you are for that first cup of coffee in the morning or the 5 o'clock whistle to blow when it's time to get off work? How eager are you to get into the Word of God? A lack of eagerness reflects a heart issue that I believe warrants some serious attention. What else do the Bereans do? It says that they examined the Scriptures. What that means is that they searched, they analyzed, they dug in. When it came to searching the Scriptures and examining the Scriptures, there was no room for male pattern blindness. There's no room for that. We need to be careful. We need to be on our guard that we do not receive everything we hear without first seeing if we can analyze it through the Word of God. Paul wasn't going to teach anything to the Bereans without them digging into the Word to verify what he was saying. I imagine that as he talked about Jesus' crucifixion, he talked about how he had to suffer, and he alluded to that passage from Isaiah, I bet there was a Berean who had the scroll who was saying, you know what, it says this right here. It says it right here. It points to what that man's talking about right here as they searched the Scriptures, examined the Scriptures to see what he had to say. There wasn't anything Paul was saying that they weren't confirming in the Word of God. You know what? There's certainly some things that the Bible doesn't touch on. There's things that, that people have strong opinions about today. And as Christians, we can open our Bibles and we can flip and we can get a concordance and we can try and it's hard to find some things. I mean, some of the hottest button topics today, you don't find things in the Bible that says this is good or this is not. I mean, things that you got to work hard to figure out. Uh, for example, here's a hot button topic. And some of you are going to be offended by what I say. Some of you are not. Some of you are going to celebrate. Some of you won't. But here's the, here's the topic. Should I or should I not be vaccinated or get some sort of medical treatment? Should I or should I not? Paul doesn't say, thou shalt get Moderna or thou shalt get Pfizer. He doesn't say it. 
As a matter of fact, the idea of a vaccine is pretty foreign to the Bible. So you're hard-pressed to find a biblical principle that says you ought to or you ought not to. You can find biblical principles to help you determine the ethics of something, but you got to dig, you got to search, you got to figure it out. And here's the thing, listen to me, church. Two well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians can come to different conclusions on that. And we got to have grace with each other in that regard. We got to show grace with each other in that regard. There are churches right now that are being eat up and split with controversy and conflict because they're fussing about something that the Bible's silent on. We got to show grace. You vaccinate your kids, that's great. You don't vaccinate your kids, that's great. Let's show grace to each other and show kindness towards one another. Two well meaning, mature Christians, both going to go to heaven when they die come to different conclusions. That's okay. There's other ideas and concepts that are kind of floating around today. They should only be received if they have been considered through the honest lens of the Word of God. Another popular fad today that often works itself into Christian circles are these various personality tests and concepts that are out there. One of the one that's popular among younger evangelicals is this thing called the Enneagram. Some of y'all are into it. Some of y'all never heard of it. Some of y'all are skeptical of it. So the, the goal here is how do we approach that from a biblical framework? If you've never heard of it, it's an example. It's a personality profile that dumps everybody into nine basic categories. You're one of nine types, and you can pick up some of the extras along the way. It's like a superpower. You just kind of glean a little bit over here and a little bit over here, but you're primarily one of these things. We know that it is helpful to be able to convey information about our personalities in succinct terms. I've seen in some, uh, some, of, these, some of these things where you can uh, share what your Myers-Briggs score is or your Myers-Briggs result is on your Facebook profile. Well, I'm an INTJ. Like, what are you talking about? I'm an ENTP. Well, I'm an EMT. I drive an ambulance. What am I? I mean, you know, it's like we want to boil people down to a number or a set of initials. Too many times these personality profiles and types originate not from Scripture, but from secular psychology and sometimes even the occult. The Enneagram in particular, if you go back and dig around where that came from, back in the early 1900s, it came from, from occult things, occultic practices, occultic practitioners. I encourage you, go look it up. There's some very helpful online articles that thoughtful Christians have written about it. Again, is it, is it demonic? I'm not going to say that. Are there things about it that are helpful? Sure. But we have to approach it through a biblical framework and through a biblical lens. The danger here is that we often take these frameworks and we apply them to the Bible. And when we approach it that way, we are on a slippery slope that ends somewhere that we do not need to be. We may find they are helpful, but we need to make sure that we leave these things where they belong. 
And the Word of God should be our devotional and interpretive lens through which we see the world. We cannot allow non-biblical systems to become the lens through which we see our Bibles and through which we see each other. The fact of the matter is, is God has made each and every single one of us unique image bearers of a holy God. And I think God laughs when he says that we can boil ourselves down to four letters or a number because he has made us infinitely more complex than that. As Jesus followers, we have to believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And when it comes to how we understand ourselves, when it comes to how we understand the world in which we live, when it comes to how we understand each other, and when it comes to how we understand the Almighty God, we have to approach that understanding through the Word of God, not in any other way. We cannot get to know God better through a system that bypasses Scripture, nor can we allow human philosophy to give us better insight into our own hearts than the insights that God has given to us through the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says it well, because it's in the Bible. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the heart, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you want your personality adequately diagnosed, I present to you the Word of God as a good place to start. Again, not suggesting that these things can't be helpful. Not suggesting that these things don't contain some elements of truth. But I am suggesting that whether it's Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or astrology for that matter, that we approach them all carefully and make sure that as eager students of the Scriptures, we keep our filters organized properly and we understand what those things are and where they come from. It's very easy to apply external filters to the Word to try to understand it rather than allowing the Word of God to be the lens through which we work to make sense of our world. As men and women who follow Jesus and who believe the Word of God, the Scriptures must be our first and foundational place for truth. So what happens? Paul, he's got a fruitful ministry with the Bereans as well, right? He's got a Bible-saturated church, people who know how to search the Bible, know how to understand the Scriptures. And it's planted right there in Berea just in time for old friends to show up. And old jealous Jews show up again and start causing trouble. Silas and Timothy, they're able to stay in Berea for a season to help grow the church. But Paul is sent down the coast to a little town called Athens. And he's going to do some great things there. But these stops at Thessalonica and Berea, they cause us to ask ourselves and to evaluate our relationship with the Word of God. And we have to ask the question, have we allowed sin to cloud our vision of God's best for us? God's best for us has been given to us in His Word. Have we allowed sin to cloud that vision? God has made His desires known to us in his word. And we've got to believe that the vision that God has given us in the word is better than any vision we try to find elsewhere. There's nothing going to be better than that. Obedience to the commands of scripture, you're not going to top that anywhere else. 
The thing is, is you, you're obedient, and even if you go through suffering, what you end up with is better than anything you would have gotten figuring it out on your own. We have eagerness to receive the word. Eagerness in how we pursue it. Eagerness, listen to me now, in the sense that we're readily joining into our Sunday school classes in small groups. Some of y'all don't belong to one. Eagerness in the sense that we couldn't imagine starting our day without it. And when it's possible, do we filter truth claims through God's standard of truth? Not some other way, not the other way around. The Reformers had a concept known as sola scriptura. You've heard these before, sola fide, sola deo gloria, sola scriptura. It means scripture alone. What they said is that scripture alone is the infallible source of our authority. It's the infallible source of, of, of our teaching, of our instruction. It's infallible and perfect in its presentation to us, and we need to treat it that way. It's better than any Sunday school quarterly you've ever picked up. It's better than any devotional book you've ever picked up. It's better than any history book or math book or social studies book that you've ever picked up. It's infallible in its authority over us. It doesn't mean that we don't read devotional literature. It doesn't mean that we don't read our history books. Students, it doesn't mean you don't read your math book. But the Word of God is infallible where all those other things are not. And if God has given you in your hands a source of absolute and ultimate authority... Why would you not receive that with eagerness? Not in a sense that we worship it, but in the sense that we acknowledge its sufficiency and supremacy over our lives. God has given us a perfect picture of what he wants from us, a perfect picture of how we live our lives, a perfect picture of what faithfulness looks like, a perfect picture of what obedience looks like. He has given that to us and has put us in our hands each and every single day. How do we handle it? How do we treat it? Do we, in our daily life, rightly handle the word of truth? Would you pray with me, please? God, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for the fact that you have given to us truth without any mixture of error. I'm grateful, God, that you have given us a filter through which we can understand the world, a lens through which we can see sin and error and folly. You've given us a way to, to understand other truth claims. You've given us the means by which we can encounter you daily. So Lord, we affirm rightly today that the Bible that we hold dear is truth. And everything has to stand up to it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be obedient, that we would not allow sin to cloud our vision of that truth, that we would affirm it for what it is, and that we would be on our guard against allowing other systems to supplant it and take its place. I thank you for the Bereans for their example of searching the scriptures. May we be men and women who understand the importance and the significance of searching the scriptures for what they are. 
I pray, Father, in these next few moments, maybe there's some areas in our life where we have carved out our caveats. We know this, but we do something different. In these next few moments, God, would you challenge us to lay those things aside and to follow you in obedience? Maybe we allowed some philosophies or, or other thoughts and worldviews to, to crowd out the truth. Maybe we've allowed some, some external ideas to color how we understand the word. So God, I pray that today we would see those things for what they are. We would gladly set them aside and evaluate those things through the scriptures. And for things that are true, great. For those things that are not, recognize them for what they are. God, I pray you'd move now in our midst. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon. Thank you.